strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello, welcome to my study. Please, come in and have a seat. Yes, come on, you can step on them. Don't mind the leaves. It's just a bit of fall color we've spread over the study to celebrate the season. And, uh, of course, this is my valet, Wilkinson. Pleased to meet you. He assists with the show by reading any uh, quoted material from books we pull from the library. Always a pleasure. He has a wonderful voice, doesn't he? Perfectly suited to the task. I really do strive to put all our best into these shows, you know. And I do want to apologize to listeners for our last episode, which really was, well, really was a mess, honestly. But we've resolved the situation with the uh, mummified cat and uh, Dr. Kudinaris and the uh, phone calls. He was pleased to get the cat back and wished you a speedy recovery. <laughs> uh, he just feels guilty. Well, at least we now have a new answering machine. The other one must have been 20 years old. You seemed pretty upset to see it go. No, it was the blood and glass. I was concerned you might need stitches. And I still don't understand how you cut yourself throwing the thing through the window. I told you it happened afterwards. Tidying up. A loose shard came at me. I would have cleaned up. Anyway, the glazier is now scheduled for Thursday. Enough. Paul has stopped calling, which means we can get on with our proper show. I, I do want to wish each and every listener out there a happy Halloween, and I hope everyone manages some suitable celebration. Wilkinson will, as usual, be dressing as his character, Rip the Undertaker. There will be no trick-or-treaters admitted inside the house this year after that unpleasantness with the hysterical child and parents, but Rip will be at the gate for any trick-or-treaters who... Okay, you hear it this time. Ah, yes. Did check the basement and the coach house. And it's not in the walls. That's just impossible. Impossible, but you hear it. Yes, I just can't seem to pinpoint it. It's everywhere and nowhere. That's it. Nothing is impossible. This is a very old house with an affinity for very old things. I needn't say more. The matter at hand tonight is necromancy, uh, perhaps more relevant than I expected, and certainly relevant to our holiday of Halloween, uh, Samhain, our grand old celebration of the old New Year. I hope you all enjoy episode 13, Ancient Necromancy. So, uh... I am Al Reidenauer, and you're listening to Bone and Sickle. Uh, 
As you likely know, it covers the intertwining of uh, horror and folklore, often with a little history thrown in. I started all this as a way to expand upon material related to my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, as well as uh, research for another project I'm undertaking. So, as it's still October, we'll be continuing our theme of talking to the dead with an episode on necromancy. If that seems at all confusing, it's because the sense of the word necromancy itself has changed over time. In its original meaning, it was simply what the Latin, well, Latinized Greek uh, etymology suggests, uh, necro for dead and mancy for divination or divination by. Consulting the dead on one's future or other hidden matters would make sense in that the dead exists beyond the limitations of our mortal perspective and can see what we cannot. Um, however, those of us who are not necromancers might naturally tend to distrust such a process and wonder if the magician truly understands or actually can control these spirits or if these spirits themselves might not be something other, something demonic. Of course, this demonizing tendency is what happened in the Christian era, but this distrust of necromancers and their art does not begin with the church. Uh, the ancient Romans, as we'll see, regarded the whole business as extremely unwholesome. We'll be examining some rather colorful examples of that particular unwholesomeness as the show progresses. And I should warn you uh, that some instances of this are not particularly suitable for the youngest or the more sensitive listeners. So, by the Middle Ages, necromancy was being generalized to mean simply any kind of sorcery, particularly that of a sinister nature. Some further confusion was introduced by the fact that the word negromancy, uh, literally black magic, was used almost interchangeably with necromancy, though the latter seems to have mostly replaced it, leaving necromancy in today's sense as simply a form of dark magic. I thought I would ease everyone back in time via the late 1960s, early 70s, uh, with the TV show Bewitched, which had a character named after uh, our first and most ancient necromancer. That character was Endora, the witchy mother-in-law, so aptly portrayed by the fabulous Agnes Moorhead. Um, it's uh, said that writers for the show, uh, fearing the occult themes of this uh, production, would alienate viewers, attempted to smooth things over a bit by naming Moorhead's character um, after a character from the Bible. And namely, this is the Witch of Endor. Now this story involves uh, Saul, the king of Israel, who is facing a difficult battle with the Philistines. Uh, Saul is a troubled man. He has fallen from favor with God and spent a good deal of time feuding with the prophet Samuel, who has recently died. Uh, seeking uh, a wise course of action against the, the uh, army of the Philistines, he tries and fails to find advice from various counselors or in his dreams and so he turns, as a last resort, to a medium or witch who lives near the village of Endor. 
And she calls the dead prophet Samuel up from below. Uh, he is unhappy to be disturbed, especially by Saul, and has nothing but doom to offer, saying, The Lord will deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. That is in the grave. Doom, doom, doom. Now, this uh, nameless necromancer is not actually called witch in the original text. Of course, she's simply identified as a woman living near Endor who has a... And uh, here follows a Hebrew word for which there is no definitive translation, um, while the King James chooses to render it as... A woman that hath a familiar spirit. Other translators chose to use the word talisman for this distinguishing thing this woman has, but the word pit is also suggested and seems the most compelling as the seer is said to observe spirits ascending out of the earth. This is particularly interesting as it fits with other contemporaneous practice, uh, practices for calling up the dead throughout the Mediterranean and Near East, and it even calls to mind a scene in The Odyssey, which, besides being an epic poem written by Homer in the 8th century BC, was apparently also a 1997 made-for-TV movie by Hallmark. A movie event unlike any you have ever seen before. Uh, that's not a recommendation, though it does feature Isabella Gianni. Um, in any case, in Homer's tale, Odysseus and his men have left the enchantress uh, Circe's island with instructions from her on how to contact the spirit of the dead Theban prophet Tiresias, who will advise Odysseus on how he might best return home and what to expect there. Um, so in this scene, what seems to parallel the Witch of Endor uh, story is the use of a ritual pit. Um, arriving in Hades, Odysseus, uh, following Circe's instructions, summons the dead by digging a hole, pouring libations of wine, water, and barley meal into it, and finally, and most importantly, blood from a black sheep slaughtered for the occasion. Black was always the preferred color for an animal to be sacrificed to the dead. Um, and so it's this that draws out the shades of the dead. Brides. Young bachelors, old men worn out with toil, maids who had been crossed in love, and brave men who had been killed in battle, with their armor still besmirched with blood. They came from every quarter and flitted around the trench with a strange kind of screaming sound that made me turn pale with fear. Theresius also appears and answers the hero's questions, uh, as does Odysseus's mother, who does not recognize her son. Noting the old woman has not lapped from the blood-filled hole, Theresius explains, Any ghost that you let taste of the blood will talk with you like a reasonable being. But if you do not let them have any blood, they will go away again. As predicted, the mother is returned to a semblance of her normal self after drinking the blood and provides more answers to the hero's questions. Aside from the use of this ritual pit, what's of interest here is the use of blood as a way of summoning the dead. We'll be seeing lots of blood and gore as we go along through this episode. Now a uh, less familiar Greek story featuring necromancy. Uh, one told by Herodotus in his histories 
in about uh, 440 BC. It begins with Periander, a tyrannical ruler of Corinth, who sends uh, his servants to consult necromancers to discover the location of some money hidden on his estate, um, the uh, hiding place of which only his deceased wife Melissa would know. The spirit is duly summoned, but refuses to reveal the location. She's angry about her improper burial, one that left her shivering on the other side. The problem, it's explained, is that her wardrobe of clothing was not burned to send it on to the world of spirits. Lest uh, Periander not believe the source of this report, the ghost provides to the servant a coded message, one that only Periander's wife would know. When his servants return from the temple with all this uh, news, Periander uh, solves the problem in his uh, typically tyrannical fashion, summoning all the women of Corinth to a festival at the temple of Juno. As they arrive, uh, dressed in their finest festive wear, only the best for Melissa, of course, uh, this happens. With the help of his guards, whom he had placed for the purpose, he stripped them one and all, making no difference between the free women and the slaves. And taking their clothes to a pit, he called on the name of Melissa and burnt the whole heap. And so the shade of Melissa is placated and the location of the gold is revealed. The coded message, by the way, is... Periander baked his bread in a cold oven. That is, the despicable tyrant, who is also believed to have murdered Melissa, after this heinous deed, committed another heinous deed. He had sex with the cold body of the deceased. The Greeks had quite a pantheon of gods and spirits related to the dead and death. Uh, along with the underworld's ruler, Hades, there was also death, or Thanatos, whose father was the god of sleep, Hypnos, and whose mother was Nyx, the goddess of night. And there were other daughters of Nyx, uh, the Kyrus, uh, female spirits of death, particularly violent death. Um, in Hesiod's Shield of Heracles, they are described hovering over a battlefield. The black dooms gnashing their white teeth, grim-eyed, fierce, bloody, and terrifying, fought over the men who were dying, for they were all longing to drink dark blood. The Kyrus or dooms here seem to be similar to the Nordic Valkyries, but they're not only uh, in charge of battlefields and soldiers. Um, usually numbered among the curious is uh, Aklis, the personification of misery, of poison, and the death mist. Hesiod describes her, Dismal and dejected, green and pale, dirty dry, fallen in on herself with hunger, knee swollen, and the nails were grown long on her hands, and from her nostrils the drip kept running, and off her cheeks the blood dribbled to the ground, and she stood there, grinning forever. And the dust that had gathered and lay in heaps on her shoulders was muddy with tears. Another sinister female spirit known to the Greeks, one that fed on blood also, was the Lamia, uh, which for some reason was the name chosen for the uh, malignant spirit in Sam Raimi's excellent drag me to hell. 
Lamia, surely you can be dissuaded from taking this insignificant woman. Surely she... The uh, Greek Lamia became for the Romans uh, the uh, larvae, or the larva singular, uh, which is also the Latin word for mask and gave us our term for the immature insect, the idea being that this uh, premature or early form masks the true adult form. And it's also the German word for grotesque carnival or Krampus masks. A more common name for the larvae is lemures, or lemurs, how we would say it in English, and it did lend its name to the uh, primate of Madagascar, uh, thanks to its uh, ghost-like nocturnal habits, and, and then by extension to the legendary lost continent of Lemuria, which is uh, was believed to be uh, represented by Madagascar as an unsubmerged tip of this uh, lost continent. The uh, Lemures were considered malevolent. They were ghosts of wicked men or women or those who are not appeased by uh, proper burial rites. Their benign or uh, neutral equivalent were the uh, manes. These were a bit different simply uh, from the souls of the dead as they were deified dead and like uh, other spirits we've been discussing, the manes uh, thirsted for blood sacrifice. Wilkinson! Are you still recording? Yes, we need it recorded. So people believe us. Perhaps if I bought some cat food, laid a trap of sorts, not to hurt it, but it doesn't want cat food. It doesn't? Something living. It wants something alive. It really does sound close. We need to talk to Paul about this. Oh, now. You're not. I don't know, but neither do it's you. It's not. Paul might. That's just... It's... I do apologize for that. I thought of cutting it out, but if things become a nuisance, uh, the more witnesses, the better. So uh, we'll get back to it now. Um, another story uh, featuring necromancy. Uh, this one is uh, this one is uh, sort of a composite of stories from uh, Plutarch and uh, Thucydides and his uh, history of the uh, Peloponnesian War. It's uh, about. Uh, Posanius, uh, king of Sparta, who led the uh, Greeks in victory over the Persians in 479 BC. Uh, troubles began when he became infatuated with a beautiful virgin, uh, Cleonice, in uh, Byzantium. Uh, so he, uh, she slips away, but uh, is eventually located by his servants, who bring the young woman by night to his bedchamber, where uh, Posanius lies in fitful sleep. As she makes her way through the darkness, however, she upsets a lamp. And at that noise, Posanius springs up thinking she is an enemy and strikes her with a sword he keeps by his bed. She dies and thereafter, the king is tortured by guilt and haunted by her ghost. 
Hoping to make peace, he seeks out the Temple of Necromancy in uh, Heraclea, where the spirit appears to him, asking but one thing to make the peace he so desires. He must return home to Sparta. Well, this would seem little to ask. Pausanias has fled home after being accused of conspiring with the very Persians he defeated only a few years earlier. Nonetheless, it seems worth the risk to the uh, ghost-haunted king. So he surreptitiously enters his uh, hometown of Lacedaemon, but he is quickly recognized and has to flee the gathering mob for sanctuary in the temple of Athena where no human blood can be shed. But the Spartans are patient and choose another fate. They brick him up inside, leaving him to starve, and it's said his mother is the first to lay a brick that seals the fate of her doomed and traitorous son. And now on to some Roman necromancy, where things get really ghoulish. Our first example uh, describes a Greek, a Thessalonian necromancer, but from a Roman perspective, uh, one that reflects the utter horror with which the Romans regarded such things. The necromancer or witch, Eurycto, appears uh, in the poem Pharsalia, Lucan's epic on the, uh, Caesar's civil war. Her characterization was so dramatic that she was later picked up by other authors, such as Dante, who uses her in his Divine Comedy, and Goethe, who uh, in Faust features her in his uh, Walpurgisnacht scene, which we talked about in episode two. In Lucan's poem, she's encountered when the general Sextus Pompey consults her uh, to foretell the outcome of uh, his upcoming battle of Pharsalius. She's described as the most powerful necromancer of Thessaly and clearly the most fearsome. Her pale face is topped with wild black locks entwined with vipers, and her habitat is wherever she might find the corpses necessary to her craft. Graveyards, gibbets, and the battlefields copiously supplied by civil war. She's described stealing bodies from the jaws of ravening wolves, gnawing the hangman's noose to procure an executed criminal, and destroying bodies in the tomb out of pure malice. When the dead are confined in a sarcophagus, then she eagerly rages every limb. She plunges her hand into the eyes, delights at digging out the congealed eyeballs, and gnaws the pallid nails on a desiccated hand. If her black rites call for it, she will also commit murder, even upon the unborn. Pregnant wombs yield to her knife the infant to be placed on flaming altars. And we're told all this even before Pompey meets her to make his request. When he does, she visits a battlefield, selecting a dead soldier whose throat has been slashed, but whose lungs are still whole and firm. Fit for her purpose, gripped by pitiless hooks over the rocks she drags into the mountain cave. And this lair is filled with the stench of decay and reflects her evil ways. Twas doubtful if the cave were not a part of hell, Lucan writes. 
She begins her work, prying open the chest of the corpse, which fills with blood to be washed out with copious poisons from the moon distilled, mixed with all monstrous things which nature's pangs bring to untimely birth. The froth from dogs, stricken with madness, foaming at the stream, a lynx's entrails, and the knot that grows upon the fell hyena, flesh of stags fed upon serpents. Then begins her chant, issued in hoarse, discordant tones that soon mingle with the sound of thunder. The bay of wolves and the barking as of dogs, the screech of night owls, the howl of beasts, and the sibilant hiss of snakes. All the powers of the underworld are invoked one by one as Erikto reminds them of the sacrifices she has given them. She chants, The flesh of man hath ne'er been absent from my proffered song, flesh washed with brains still quivering. The child whose severed head I placed upon the dish, but for my hand had lived. Her magic soon takes startling effect. Then the blood grew warm and liquid, and with softening touch cherished the stiffened wounds and filled the veins till throbbed once more the slow returning pulse. And every fiber trembled, as with death life was commingled. Then, not limb by limb, with toil and strain, but rising at a bound, leaped from the earth erect the living man. The news the reanimated soldier brings, however, is like that brought to Saul in our Witch of Endor story, also gloomy. He foretells Pompey's defeat and death and even the eventual assassination of Caesar himself. As you should be able to tell from Lucan's portrayal of Erito, the Romans regarded necromancy and witches with extreme horror. Uh, long before the Christian church began its witch hunting, Rome had held major witch trials and purges in the year 184 and 180 to 179 BC, with uh, magistrates condemning up to 2,000 alleged witches in one purge and as many as 3,000 in another. These numbers, if they are to be trusted, testify to the popularity of magical practice in ancient Rome, and records attest to magicians being sought out for everything from love charms to curses on rival charioteers at the races. Horace, who is known for the barbed critiques of his satires, uh, takes on the uh, Romans' uh, gullibility or fondness for magic, lampooning those who supported or engaged in the practice of magic in his uh, poetry. He embodies witchcraft in the figure of Canidia, who reappears in several of his works. In his Epodes, uh, which is named for uh, the particular poetic form, the Epode, which these pieces take, uh, he presents uh, this uh, hag, Canidia, performing uh, a love spell on a man, Varus, who has lost interest in her. Canidia, who had twined little snakes in her disheveled hair, gave orders to burn in her witch's fire wild fig trees uprooted from tombs and feudal cypresses, eggs dipped in the blood of foul frogs, a night owl's feather, 
herbs from Iolcus and Spain with its rich poisons and bones torn from the mouth of a hungry bitch. Aeolus, by the way, is a town in uh, Thessaly, which was Eritos' home, and generally known for witches, and this town in particular is was famous for its witchcraft. Um, Canidia is assisted in his work by three other witches, uh, Sagana, Veia, and Folia. Uh, Sagana sprinkles the ritual area with water from Lake Avernus, the uh, infernal lake I mentioned in the uh, Cave Witches episode. And uh, she is described as having rough hair standing on end, like a sea urchin or some bristling wild boar. We don't know what Folio does exactly, but Vea is uh, busy digging a pit for a boy they have captured, and then Barry, with only his head above ground, torturing him all the while with uh, plates of food that he may not taste, and waiting for his death by starvation. The uh, goal of all this cruelty, Horace explains, All this so his marrow could be cut out and his liver dried to make a love charm. In book one of his satires, Horace again features Canidia, this time performing actual necromancy. Uh, she's working with Sagana only this time, and uh, the two are working their magic on the uh, Esquiline Hill, one of the uh, seven hills of Rome, which, though being somewhat rehabilitated in Horace's day, still retained its dark reputation as a pauper's gravesite where criminals were executed and left to rot or feed carrion. Uh, so, an ideal place for Horace to have his two witches... Gathering bones and noxious herbs. He goes on to describe... Cavidia, her dingy robe tucked up, walking about with naked feet and hair in disarray, and howling with the elder Sargana. A deadly pallor made them both most hideous to behold. Then they began with their own nails to dig a hollow in the earth, and with their teeth to tear in bits a black ewe lamb. The blood was poured by both of them into the trench that thence might evoke the Marnies, spirits that would answer give. And he mentions them burning wax and wool effigies and burying them in the earth. They invoke Hecate, the goddess of the witches, and Tisiphone, uh, one of the Furies, who also guards the gates of the underworld. As their rite is conducted, dark presences emerge on the scene. Then serpents you could see, and hellhounds roving near. But before the Manis can make their appearance, the tale's narrator interrupts the witches, and they flee, comically described as losing a wig and false teeth in their hurried exit. More comic and simply weird is Horace's narrator itself. It's a rather dejected, uh, carved, wooden image of Priapus, the god of fertility, uh, that's been stationed there like a scarecrow at the graveyard to scare off any skulking ne'er-do-wells like these witches. And the means of scaring off the witches is weirder still. Uh, the statue made a sound loud as a bladder burst by sudden blow. Even the most genteel commentators admit that what's meant here is simply the statue farted, and rather loudly, it seems. And by the way, it's said that this horrific uh, Canidia character Horace created, uh, while intended to lampoon the practice of magic among the Romans, had another purpose. It represented a woman who had rejected the writer, a perfume seller by the name of Gratidia, who may have also dabbled in magic. 
While the uh, witches just described are all literary creations, we also have plenty of uh, purportedly true Roman accounts of necromancy. I do say purportedly, as uh, the particular acts of sorcery I'll discuss are attributed to public or political figures who may have simply been targets of smear campaigns. Um, for instance, in the year 58, the uh, orator and philosopher Cicero composed an attack on the statesman Vatinus, who was preparing to testify in a case against Cicero's friend, Cestius. In it, uh, Cicero alludes to Vatinius' monstrous and barbarous ways, and more directly, unheard of and impious sacrifices to evoke the spirits of the shades below and to appease the manis with the entrails of murdered boys. Along with the blood we've already encountered as food for the manis, uh, necromancy stories not infrequently reference entrails, uh, the mention of which uh, can be understood in the context of uh, haruspicy, uh, the well-known uh, Roman practice of divining the future from the internal organs of sacrificed animals. The same, done with humans, is called anthropomancy, and here young boys or virgin females are often mentioned as preferred objects of sacrifice. The use of uh, body parts and acts of necromancy was also associated with the uh, death in 19 AD of the uh, general Germanicus, a death which was commonly understood as having been engineered by his rival Tiberius. The historian uh, Tacitus records that an individual named Piso was accused of using black magic under Tiberius's orders to cause the general's death. Uh, Tacitus reports that bloody scorched body parts exhumed from the grave were found in Piso's quarters along with lead tablets inscribed with the name Germanicus. I'll close out with one last story, also gruesome, but at least offering a bit of poetic justice. Uh, it's told of the Emperor Valerian, who ruled during the Empire's decline and led the Roman army into a devastating defeat at the hands of the Persians. Valerian was also notorious for his uh, persecution of Christians, and so it was with no fondness that uh, Eusebius, the bishop of Caesarea, uh, writes in his church history that Valerian consulted magicians or necromancers from Egypt, and that one of his counselors induced him to practice initiations and abominable sorceries and to offer unacceptable sacrifices to slay innumerable children and to sacrifice the offspring of unhappy fathers to divide the bowels of newborn babes and to mutilate and cut to pieces the creatures of God. After Valerian's defeat, the Battle of Edessa, the emperor suffered further indignity when his negotiations for a peace settlement with the Persian king Shapur went awry and the emperor was taken prisoner. Early Christian writer Lactantius uh, records that Shapur enjoyed humiliating the enslaved emperor, forcing him to kneel as a footstool every time he mounted his horse. According to one story, Valerian was eventually put out of his misery by having molten gold pour down his throat. But uh, Lactantius uh, describes a different fate. He was flayed and his skin, stripped from the flesh, was dyed with vermilion and placed in the temple of the gods of the barbarians. That 
the remembrance of a triumph might be perpetuated, and that this spectacle might always be exhibited to their ambassadors as an admonition to the Romans that they should not place too great confidence in their own strength. So, uh, there we have at least some sort of justice for these uh, necromatic rites Valerian was alleged to have conducted. A fair warning to all necromancers out there, and our final scene of horror for this particular episode. I do hope everyone's been enjoying our shows and will continue listening to future episodes. I do apologize for the cat nuisance. We should have that sorted out by the next episode. I certainly hope so, at least. Um, shows are uploaded on Mondays, usually every other week or uh, twice a month, depending on the month. Um, please do like and comment where and whenever you can. Um, reviews, likes, and shares via social media are very important for the uh, continuance of the show. We particularly would appreciate reviews from those of you who enjoy the show. They make uh, all the difference in the world in the show's visibility on Apple Podcasts and uh, other distributors. Our website, boneandsickle.com, provides links to our Facebook group and Twitter along with uh, show notes replete with uh, images and video links to uh, any outside music we use in the show. Music and sound design otherwise are all original for Bone and Sickle. Um, you can also find our donor link there. Uh, Patreon members have a choice of gifts and incentives, including exclusive access to extra elements that go into uh, the making of the podcast, digital downloads of rare books used in preparation of the show, uh, the show soundscapes, which you hear in the background, and also my Krampus book, as well as a signed 8x10 photo of Wilkinson suitable for framing and adulation, as we say. Um, Donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is actually the sole support uh, making all of this possible, uh, the continuation of the program as a regular bi-monthly release. Thanks to all those who do support this podcast, including our latest uh, patrons, uh, Brett Rapp, Stephanie Walls, Luki Adlam, Heather Cellini, and David, uh, just David, and uh to Pamela Fitzpatrick and the excellent Monster Talk podcast for recently upping their donation levels. We very much appreciate your kind support and donations. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reitnauer, and Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>